high the heaven had not been named, firm ground below had not been called by name, naught but primordial Apsu their begetter, and Mumutiamat, she who bore them all, their waters commingling as a single body. No reed hut had been matted, no marsh land had appeared, when no gods whatever had been brought into being, uncalled by name, their destinies undetermined. Then it was that the gods were formed within them. That was the beginning of the Babylonian epic of creation, from one of the tablets that's come to be associated with the story of Gilgamesh. It's one of the oldest stories, perhaps it's the oldest story, that's ever been discovered. Hello and welcome to The Threads Podcast. The Threads is a podcast that aims to trace the threads of ideas as they journey through literature, arts, science, philosophy, and history. I'm Gary, and in this first episode, we're going to be taking a look at an idea so mundane it might not have even occurred to you to think about it before, and that idea is the directions of up and down. Up and down might seem like such simple and basic concepts, but what they mean to us says a lot about our fundamental ideas about the universe and the world that we live in. Imagine this. You put on a blindfold. We're standing indoors. And then we're going to slowly spin you round and round and round a few times. With the blindfold still on, maybe if you've only spun round once, you might still be able to tell which direction is north. You'll probably get it wrong. If I spin you round many times, you probably won't be able to tell which direction is which. But if I ask you to point which direction is up or which is down, you'll have no difficulty at all. So today, we're going to explore the importance of up and down. What do we think is above us, and what do we think is below? I don't just mean today. I mean throughout the whole history of thought, at least as much as I can explore it in a podcast. There's so much that's unknown, but there's a lot that is known too. That's why I decided to start with the Babylonian epic. By the way, the song you heard in the introduction is an interpretation of a Babylonian song found on a clay tablet that dates to the same period as the Gilgamesh epic, at least the same period in which it would have been told and handed down to people. It's called the H6 Hurrian song, and that version you heard is Richard Dumbrell's interpretation of the music, sung by Lara Yokada. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. The Babylonian epic has a really interesting history. And the version I just read to you was translated by E.A. Wallace Budge, who was an Egyptologist and an interesting translator. He did a lot of work in translating some of the Egyptian scrolls of the dead, as well as the Gilgamesh tablets. To the Babylonians, water was absolutely crucial. They seem to have incorporated it at many different stages of their mythology. And this particular epic is not easily datable 
but it's at least from 1500 BC. I'd like to just compare it with a, uh, with a record from another ancient religion, and that's the great hymn to Aten. The Aten was uh, a god worshipped in ancient Egypt for a significant time. Now, when you think of ancient Egyptian religion, you probably think of animal-headed gods like Osiris. You probably think of um, dramatic conflicts between siblings like Set and Isis. For most of the history of the Old Kingdom, and again the New Kingdom of Egypt, which lasts thousands of years, these are the main gods that most people are worshipping, but less known is the cult of the Aten. The great hymn to Aten could well have been written by the pharaoh himself, Achenaten. He lived around 1400 BC, uh, thereabouts, and Achenaten has Aten in his name. He chose to change his name from Ahmenotep IV in devotion to the god that he worshipped. Now, there's no record of who wrote the great hymn to Aten, but it has been speculated by some scholars that it was Akhenaten himself. Akhenaten tried to make Atenism the core religion of all of ancient Egypt, and he even built a new capital, Amin-Ra, as a devotional palace for the god. But the religion didn't last all that long as a major force in Egypt. His own son, who he called Tutankhaten, when he became pharaoh, changed his name to Tutankhamun, and took the country back to the polytheistic religion that it had before. But the hymn to Aten says a lot about what the Artenists believed about the structure of the world they lived in, and so I'd like to read a little bit to you. Translated, of course, but translated into a sort of old version, biblical English, if you like. In one part of the prayer, our priest is saying, Thou thyself art afar, but thy beams are upon the earth. Thou settest in the horizon of the west, the earth is in darkness in the form of death. Thou makest the Nile in the underworld, thou settest a Nile in heaven, which cometh down to them. Again, here's water and its importance. Not surprising for a culture who live everything crucial about their life is centered around the Nile itself. But what I find really interesting about this is the idea that the Nile is made in the underworld and in heaven. So to an Egyptian, the Nile is the life bringer. The Nile is central to your life every day. And therefore, it becomes incorporated into the religion in this particular way. If the Nile can be made in the underworld, it can come up from the underworld. And that seems to be what it does. Something similar was seen in the, uh, in the Babylonian myths as well. There's a flood myth described in the Gilgamesh story. And in some of the tablets, it suggests that waters that usually reside under the earth came up and flooded the land. 
It made quite a sensation when that tablet was discovered. There's lots of parallels between that and the flood myth described in the biblical story of Noah. And the comparison feels especially important, because while most scholars would place the origin of the Genesis story sometime between the 5th and 3rd centuries BCE, the youngest of the Gilgamesh tablets is dated probably around the 10th century BCE, at least 500 years earlier. And sub-tablets telling versions of this story can go back another thousand years. There are several different versions of the story in Akkadian. Now, the Genesis story is one that's known by most people. Humanity has become wicked. God comes to a person who has not become wicked and tells him that there'll be a flood to kill everyone, to stop them being so wicked. So he has to gather his family and he has to gather all the animals and put them in a boat which he's going to build and the boat will help him to survive the upcoming storm. The flood that's going to then destroy all civilization. So there's 40 days and nights of rain. The flood ends. And at the end, Noah offers an animal sacrifice to God who receives the sacrifice and then agrees not to do a flood again. Now, I'm going to outline some comparisons there with the story from Gilgamesh. Our hero's not called Noah, he's called Utnapishtim in the Gilgamesh story. And in other tablets from earlier Mesopotamian times, we've also heard of a similar story featuring a character called Atrahasis. It's possible that these names are all cognates of each other, that is to say that one is derived from the other and that Noah is actually a shortened version of part of the name Utnapishtim. Anyway, in this story, there are multiple gods. Utnapishtim, it's not really said that he's particularly virtuous, but more that there's a conflict between the different gods. The reason why some of the gods want to destroy humanity is because they're too noisy. They're making a big racket, and the gods don't like that. But one of the gods decides to send a dream to Utnapishtim, to warn him of the flood, because he doesn't really want humanity to be destroyed. So Utnapishtim is to build the boat. He puts all of his gold and silver on the boat, which is interesting. And he rescues animals, but he rescues his own animals, animals of the field, animals that are going to be useful to him after the flood. So there's a storm. It's incredibly violent and it lasts seven days. Instead of just turning up dead, the humans have actually been turned to clay by the flood. And after the flood, Utnapishtim sacrifices a sheep. Then the gods smell the sacrifice. And as a result, Utnapishtim doesn't actually manage to extract a promise that the gods are not going to do this again. But he does himself and his wife both become immortal. So he gets something out of it. But both flood stories suggest that the water comes from below. In the Bible, that's in Genesis 7:11, by the way. And this tells us something about what these people thought about what they would find down below them in the earth. If I asked you, what will you find if you dig and dig and go deeper and deeper underground? What do you expect to find? Soil? Water? Maybe rock? Maybe caverns? And perhaps eventually, you'll reach a place that is too hot to dig. Dense, molten rock. It's a very 
practical and very materialistic view of the universe that wasn't really held by people throughout all of history. If you have a more spiritual upbringing, you might associate the direction of digging downwards with other things. Perhaps you think of hell as being something that would be found below. This is surprisingly common across a whole lot of religions. It suggests a really consistent idea of what an afterlife or what an underworld should be. Even as I say this about religious views throughout history, one of the most fascinating books on what's below us, published in 1664 by the German Athanasius Kircher, depicts the materialistic view that I talked about earlier. Kircher himself was a Jesuit, which is interesting, but he was also fascinated by the material world. In his book Mundus Subterraneus, there are illustrations of what lies below us under the circular spherical earth. Supposedly, he had himself lowered by a rope into the bubbling crater of lava-filled Vesuvius to look at it himself with his own eyes. And he concluded that the hot molten rock extended in a network of tunnels below us going through the earth. Please, if you have time, take a look at the show notes and look at the picture there. I've got a picture of the illustration of this very description from his book. He was a spectacular illustrator. And you can see the lava going all around the world. He imagined that it was all connected. But something else incredible happens in his thinking. It occurs to him that the same thing might be happening with water. That the oceans of the world and the lakes are connected via deep subsurface channels that allow water to flow beneath the earth. Now this is not quite the structure that a modern geologist will tell you the Earth has. But this is 1664. It's incredible. The illustrations themselves are beautiful. And I think Kirscher deserves credit for his imagination in this regard. Connecting the views of both the ancient Artanist religion and the Babylonian beliefs with the modern view that hot lava also extends beneath the world. And to have done so within a Christian context makes him a particularly exciting person to talk about. When we look retrospectively at these times, it can be hard to tell which publications were important and which weren't. But Kirsch's idea did not simply disappear. Only 30 or so years later in 1684, the English theologian Thomas Burnett published a book called Tellurus Theoria Sacra, which means Sacred Theory of the Earth, in which he tried to blend these materialistic physical descriptions of the earth with his religious views. There are some, again, gorgeous illustrations showing what the earth might have looked like before the flood of Noah, in which he speculates that all or most of the water was at that time subterranean. And so he draws this illustration again. It's in the show notes if you'd like to take a look. Of the earth 
with a large portion of its oceans removed. And therefore, he's making it very clear that the flood of Noah, the flood I've introduced as the flood of Utnapishtim, was the critical catastrophic moment in the Earth's history when most of the water moved to the surface where it now remains. It's an interesting idea, and it shows the determination of theological thinkers to unite what they're learning at this period from natural philosophy about the nature of the world with their existing biblical knowledge. Burnett is far from unique in trying to do this. Really, it's the standard thread of intellectual thinkers during that period of time. But more on that in other episodes. Afterlife locations that are underneath the ground have been described in so many different religions, even starting with that Gilgamesh epic that I mentioned. In one of the later tablets, Gilgamesh himself goes down and he sails down on water to find the underworld. But the Christian hell is far from being the only one that is thought of as being underground. Indeed, the Norse religion attempted to explain the underground in some way as a place where the roots of the world tree Yggdrasil would reach. The ancient Greek religion had an underworld. At different points in the history of ancient Greece, the Elysian field was either accessed via the underworld or it was literally there. But the evil afterlife, if you like, was always an underworld phenomenon ruled by Hades. And this is true across a lot of different religious traditions and cosmologies. I think it's probably fair to say that the cosmological aspects of religions don't really require believers to be particularly faithful or particularly pious to the religion. After all, you had no other source for most of human history of knowledge. You had no other way to know what was beyond the realms of experience. And underground has always been something that's beyond our experience. I should clarify that in this context, when I say cosmology, I don't really mean that word in the modern sense of the study by physicists of the deep time history of the universe. I'm really using that word to refer to any attempts to explain the nature of the universe in a deep way, to explain why things are the way they are, or how the world came to be the way it is. Whether that's an explanation about how the stars gained their places in the sky, or an explanation that says how humans came to rule the land. And so, this keeps recurring again and again and again. I'd like to read you a little extract from the 1320 or so publication Divine Comedy by Dante. In the fourth canto, Virgil and Dante have just been taken across the river Acheron by Charon, who is the ferryman who takes people into hell or the inferno. However, before you reach there, you reach Limbo, and at the top layer, you get this beautiful experience. It goes like this. 
A heavy thunder broke the deep sleep in my head so that I started up like a person who by force is wakened. And risen erect, I moved my rested eye about and looked fixedly to distinguish the place where I was. True it is that I found myself on the verge of the valley of the woeful abyss that gathers in thunder of infinite wailings. Dark, profound it was, and cloudy, so that though I fixed my sight on the bottom, I did not discern anything there. Now we descend down here into the blind world, began the poet, all deadly pale. I will be first, and thou shall be second. That's Virgil, by the way, the poet. I love that description. Dante is not necessarily writing something that he thought would be factually true, but it's fair to say that a picture of hell, something like this, as a deep pit or as a deep chasm, something that descends deep into the center of the earth, is some, a picture that's appeared quite a few times, especially in medieval Christianity. It would be fair to say that compared to the Babylonian religion, Christianity is relatively young. Going back to the Gilgamesh epic, however, there are some extremely interesting and compelling similarities between what both of these two cosmologies think of as being below us. At one point in the epic, Gilgamesh and his good friend and lover Enkidu cut down a great tree, a cedar, which has got legendary history behind it. Enkidu says to Gilgamesh, My friend, we have cut down the towering cedar whose top scrapes the sky. They then go on to use the wood to make a raft. But I think the phrase, his top scrapes the sky, gives us a tasty glimpse of what the sky may have meant to the people who would have read and heard this story. Now, perhaps the phrase is just being figurative. We still have the concept of a skyscraper, although it's not for a naturally occurring tree. But it's also possible that this suggests that the sky is a physical object that exists at a certain height up above us, and that for the Babylonians, up is not an unlimited direction. It has a top, there's an edge to the world. Now, it's a very subtle claim, this sentence. But in the creation myth, it's also mentioned that the sky had to be lifted from the earth. And there's a similar story in one of the foundational myths of some of the po Polynesian mythologies involving their great hero Maui, who you may remember being portrayed in the Disney film Moana. But in one of the stories about Maui, he has to lift the sky up from the earth, where previously there was no space for anyone to stand up or anything to grow. The sky clearly had a weight and a size. Again, that's a very different religious background, a very different cosmological notion. But it gets us some of the same ideas. The sky might be a distinct thing at a certain height, rather than just a diffuse emptiness. Going back to the direction of down, the Gilgamesh epic has a couple of other interesting comments. At one point in the story, the goddess Ishtar leads the bull of heaven down to earth, and she's angry. She's angry at Gilgamesh, and she says, I will knock down the gates of the netherworld and let the dead go up to eat the living. I'm curious about this idea that the dead would want to eat the living. 
In this afterlife, we have something that almost resembles one of our zombie dramas from today. Normally, the dead are represented as themselves. Just the people they were in life, perhaps sadder, perhaps quieter, or perhaps being punished. But not so often do they want to eat the living. Nonetheless, the netherworld is clearly down below. It's underground, much like it is in Elysium in the Greek tradition. Another commentary that Ishtar has about the sky is when she says, Mount Mashu, which daily guards the rising and setting of the sun, above which only the dome of the heavens reaches. Again, the heavens is a dome, and a dome is a shape that we would expect to touch the ground. This could be a uncertainty of translation. I'm not directly an expert. This is not my field. I'd love to hear from someone who's translated Akkadian scripts could possibly comment on whether a dome could be a sphere. Of course, for us, the atmosphere is a sphere. The word is built in. Below the Earth, in the Babylonian creation epic, there's one more thing that I want to comment at this point. And it's about something completely different to hell. This is not about the underworld. It's not about the netherworld. It's about part of the fundamental forces of creation in the earth. There's a water known as Apsu, and it lives below the earth. It's very, very deep, deeper than the sea. Apsu is the water from which the earth was created, which helped to give the earth life. And it's also referenced in some descriptions of the great flood in which the Apsu rises up, and that's why the sea level increases. There's more water being added, and it's a different water to the normal water of the sea. Now let's return to down. But what's so special about this direction? Of course, we can feel it. We have sensory organs in our ears to detect directions. It's been useful for our survival for a very long time, knowing which way down was. But it's more than that. It's become integrated into the philosophical frameworks that we've been raised on for our intellectual history, especially here in the Greek-influenced Western world. If we go all the way back to the philosopher Aristotle, in his physics, he had a lot to say about the significance of up and down directions, and he got as far as to tell us, or to use this idea to explain to us why it's the Earth that's at the center of the entire universe. In the physics, Aristotle says, staying above is contrary to motion from above downwards, and for Earth, staying above is an unnatural occurrence, while motion from above downwards is natural. So Aristotle's saying to us that the material that he calls Earth, because he's using a four elements model of the world, should go downwards. He's really not giving us a reason beyond it's just right for that to happen. He then goes on to say, And accordingly, one staying will be contrary to another. 
the unnatural staying contrary to the natural staying of the same thing, just as the unnatural movement was contrary to the natural movement of the same thing. For one of these two stayings, staying above or staying below, as the case may be, will be natural, the other unnatural. All he's doing in expanding this is trying to tell us that for bubbles of air to stay at the bottom of water would be unnatural, and for stones to stay hovering on the top of water or in the air would also be unnatural. He's using a, an argument that objects will move in a certain direction purely because it's natural. But in doing so, he tells us something that he has deeply held, a core belief, if you like, that he hasn't really exposed to us. And that's the belief that down below our feet somewhere is some special location with a unique property of being right at the bottom. Now, if you live on the earth, you may have the sense that there is such a location. But it seems that you don't quite think of it in the same way as Aristotle does. Or probably not, I suppose. Because for Aristotle, that point that lies below us, somewhere underneath our feet, is the centre of the entire universe, not just the centre of the earth. In fact, his argument that heaviness always works one way, that of earth to earth, and lightness always the other way, that of fire to fire, is entirely predicated on the importance of physics being something that exists here on earth and not somewhere else. It seems a little bit weird to us in the way that we use the language that Aristotle wrote an entire book on physics that doesn't come close to the topic of astronomy, doesn't come close to talking about the motions of the stars and the heavens. And that's not because he didn't have answers to those questions. If you've read a bit of Aristotle, you might know that he's the sort of guy that has answers to any questions. He loves answering questions. And he comes up with answers in his own ways. I think I'll be covering him a bit more in future episodes. The point is that to him, physics is something that is constrained to the here and now, the area around us, the air, the earth, and the place where we live. But the stars, the planets, and the sun, well, they're something else. They don't need to follow the same rules, and they're not made out of the same types of matter that exist down here. They're not made out of earth, or air, or fire, or water. They're something completely different, and the rules of gravity don't really apply. Now, it seems that in talking about what lies below us and what's down, it's inevitable that I've come towards talking about what's up, the heavens and the sky and the stars. Well, I think their importance is perhaps even greater when we come to think about how humans have considered the universe around them and their place in it. And I think that's the real scale of the question of what people think up is and what people think down is. It's really about why we're here in the middle. In Jainist cosmology, which is a very, very old religion from India, there are layers that sound a bit like hell. They involve torment and they involve the souls of the dead that are very clearly placed below the place where we live which is also not the top one of these layers. And this sort of thing keeps happening. 
I suppose anyone that's lived in the world knows that we're not at the top because you can keep going up. But the confusion comes when you have to start thinking about, well, what happens if you do keep going in that direction? I think humans have always envied birds a bit in their ability to go high. But they can go nowhere near as high as the things that we can see, like the moon. And so it's always been our way to speculate as to what really is up there and what it's all about. When we look at old creation myths, we always see reference to the heavens. And again, I'm coming back to creation myths because they're one of the best ways of looking at what people really believed in a certain time of history or even now. I'd like to take a little section from the Quran, which is not really what you might call an ancient religion, but certainly it's been believed for more than a thousand years. And there is a passage which translated says something like, so he formed the heaven into seven and we adorned the lowest of these heavens with stars like lamps for beauty and protection. It's clear that the existence of the heavens is something that exists for the purposes of us living here on earth. And we see similar stories described in the Christian Bible. In Genesis, it's very clear that God made the stars and that he made them for a specific purpose of allowing them to be viewed from the earth in a certain way, perhaps to create light at night. It's not surprising that two religions with such a close historical bond to each other would have similar creation stories. But what I think is distinctive about them is that they're religions that have a God which created the entire world from scratch. In Christianity, in Genesis, it's very clear that in the beginning there was God and then there was the earth and the light and so on and so on. But in some of these older religions, a much more common theme is God's coming and giving form to an already existing earth. And in these stories, it becomes more clear the importance of the directions up and down. In many ways, it seems like the gods themselves are subject to the importance of these dimensions. It's almost like the universe is a, an unchangeable framework within which the gods have to work. Going back to Gilgamesh, there is a section in the ta tale that says, After heaven had been moved away from earth, after earth had been separated from heaven, after the name of man had been fixed, after An had carried off heaven, after Enlil had carried off earth. Heaven and earth seem to exist in the beginning in a state of commingling. They seem to be together. And in other points in the story, it describes how the gods live somewhere unexplained. It's very far off. It's a distant place. And it's described as being in the heavens. But how the gods move between these two worlds is not clear. It's not clear if they're above us or if they're just distant. But that separation of sky from earth is something that comes up again and again comes up in all kinds of different stories. In fact, there's a similar kind of idea in a Christian writing from an English writer called Kedman. It says, Firstly, he crafted for children of men, heaven as roof, holy creator. Now, I believe this was written in Latin originally, but 
The concept of the sky as a roof is one that comes up a lot of times. The sky is often thought of as something that hangs above us. It's not around us, it's just above. And that might feel a little bit weird if you've been brought up in a modern conception of the atmosphere. If you've grown up to think of the atmosphere as a gassy sort of low density space through which you move. You may even think that the atmosphere, either the air or the sky, is something you're already in. Is the sky far away? It feels like a strange and abstract question nowadays to ask where the sky is. Yes, you can say it's above, but it feels a little bit pedantic to do so, given that there's no boundary. But we only know that by being able to go up there in the modern day. One of the things I'm really trying to do in this podcast is to talk about the ways in which we live in a moment where certain things, certain beliefs are just part of our everyday existence. So much so that we maybe don't even question them or don't even know that they've changed. And by looking at historical ideas about philosophy or science or religion or knowledge, we can open our eyes to what people have thought other times in histories and maybe have a little bit of a think about where in that story we lie. It can be so tempting to talk about the history, especially of science, as something which has happened in the past and now we're at the end of it. But we're not at the end and there's plenty of things that will still change. I'd like to read you another piece of poetry about creation mythology and this one comes from the Metamorphosis by Ovid. Ovid was a Roman poet and this poem was probably written around the year 8, so very close to the time of Christ. Now, Ovid wrote the Metamorphosis as a work of poetry and as a work of myth, really, sort of legendary work. It doesn't seem like Ovid really personally believed in this story. But the point is not whether he believed it or not, really. The point is that it shows that these kinds of ideas, these kinds of mythologies were floating around with something that people could already engage with at the time. Right near the start of the Metamorphosis, Ovid is describing the formation of the world. And he has this wonderful passage where he says, No moon did yet her blunted horns renew nor yet was earth suspended in the sky, nor poised did on her own foundations lie, nor seas about the shores their arms had thrown, but earth and air and water were in one. Thus air was void of light and earth unstable, and water's dark abyss unnavigable. No certain form on any was impressed, all were confused and each disturbed the rest. For hot and cold were in one body fixed, and soft with hard, and light with heavy mixed. But God, or nature, while they thus contend, to these intestine discords put an end, then earth from air and seas from earth were driven, and grosser air sunk from ethereal heaven. Thus disembroiled they take their proper place, the next of kin contiguously embrace, and foes are sundered by a larger space. The force of fire ascended first on high and took its dwelling in the vaulted sky. 
Then air succeeds in lightness next to fire, whose atoms from an active earth retire. Earth sinks beneath and draws a numerous throng of ponderous, thick, unwieldy seeds along. I love this passage because even though Ovid is not trying to tell us what he does or doesn't believe, what he is telling us is that the theory that Aristotle believed has permeated its way right into the way he thinks about the universe. He talks about things taking up their proper places, which is very similar to the language Aristotle used in his physics. He talks about the elements in a similar kind of way. Aristotle talks about earth, air, water, and fire. And here we've got fire ascending on high and air also rising upwards. Now, in the middle of those, in that passage, Ovid says to us, the force of fire ascended first on high and took its dwelling in the vaulted sky. Sounds like he's suggesting that the stars are a type of fire. But while he's trying to use the physics to explain the behaviour of the matter the Earth is made of, he's done something else interesting, which is that he's refused to identify the Creator. He calls it God or Nature. He doesn't seem to want to get off the fence about whether it's a conscious being or not. Either way, the Earth existed, or the matter of the Earth existed, before any of this organisation was imposed upon it. Ovid's creation myth is probably an amalgam of some of the ideas he had heard in either things he had read or stories he'd been told as a child. Again, living in 8 CE, Ovid would have grown up in a very different mythological framework to the rest of us. He wouldn't have been told the same stories when he was young that we were. And it's quite possible, in fact, no, it's probable that he knew a lot of stuff that is no longer available to us whether they be works of philosophers that he had read, or poems, or nursery rhymes he was told when he was younger. There's all kinds of sorts of information that affect us, affect what we believe, affect who we are, and how we think about the world. Ovid continues, Thus, when the god, whatever god was he, had formed the whole, and made the parts agree, that no unequal portions might be found, he moulded earth into a spacious round. Then with a breath, he gave the winds to blow and bade the congregators' gated waters flow. Now, here's the first time I've mentioned the shape of the earth, a spacious round. So we're in 8 CE and we have a poet telling us that the earth is a sphere. This is actually completely normal for the period. There's nothing exceptional about this. It's sometimes said, especially by people who in the modern day have gone back to a flat earth model, that the flat earth is something that was established among the ancients. But actually, it's not something that was believed by the ancient Greek mathematicians of the Hellenistic period, who had already been able to show that the earth was round through the works of people like Aristarchus of Samos and Aristothenes of Cyrene. Not only did they know that the Earth was round, they had a fair estimate of how big it was, although the quality of that calculation has been a little bit disputed because it relies on a unit called a stadion, which 
no one ever actually defined how big that unit was. And so we're a little bit uncertain about what that measurement was. Nonetheless, the general principle of the Earth being a sphere, the Moon also being a sphere, and the Sun being a very distant object, are things that were already well established among philosophers at the time of, by the time of Ovid. And living in 8 CE in Rome, Ovid was in an environment of um, lots of celebration of philosophy, lots of work being done in scholarly circles, and a lot of wealth was going around, which probably meant they had access to information, perhaps in the form of books and scrolls. So this is probably a good representation of what the higher end of society knew. But because it works its way into a poem, I think that's a good indication that this isn't really an attempt at convincing people of some sort of new theory or questionable idea. And so I think that's quite good evidence that this is fairly solid ground for him to talk about at this time. A little later, but still near the beginning, Ovid goes on to tell us a little bit more about the structure of the stuff that's above us. Talking about the winds, he says, While frowning Oster seeks the southern sphere, and rots with endless rain the unwholesome year. We then go on to what's above the clouds, he says, High over the clouds and empty realms of wind, the god a clearer space for heaven designed, where fields of light and liquid ether flow, purged from the ponderous dregs of earth below. Scarce had the power distinguished these, when straight the stars, no longer overlaid with weight, exert their heads from underneath the mass and upward shoot, and kindle as they pass, and with diffusive light adorn their heavenly place. Then, every void of nature to supply, with forms of gods he filled the vacant sky. New herds of beasts he sends the plains to share, new colonies of birds to people the air. So, we're now going into a passage about the creation here, down on the earth. But in that little tiny passage, we've been told that the stars began as part of the earth. We've been told that they no longer overlaid with weight. They've been separated out from the elements that give them weight, and that allows them to just float into the sky. Without particularly realizing it, I think, Ovid is subtly questioning the metaphysics of Aristotle, in particular the separation of earth and heavens, by suggesting that they really are made from the same kinds of matter and that some kind of process had to happen to them in order to allow them to escape the force of gravity. He hasn't told us what that process was, but he seems to be aware that it was existing. And indeed, that they had to catch fire, that they had to begin to glow. Again, this is probably not the notion of what stars are that you've lived with most of your life. But I think it's interesting to see that the progress over the past 300 years or so since Aristotle is that the philosophy is subtly changing. Now again, Ovid is not trying to be a revolutionary philosopher in this particular work, but he's still telling us what he thinks. 
and I think that's quite interesting. And that is it for episode one of the Threads podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Like the podcast and leave a review if you have the time. It would really help me out. Next episodes are continuing with the theme of up and down, but moving on to Earth's place in the universe and indeed the structure of the cosmos itself. Why not tell your friends about the podcast if you enjoyed it or found it interesting and if you think they will. (laughs) If you'd like to ask questions or get in touch with me about anything, you can contact me on Twitter. I'm currently at Gruz9, although that's going to change. And I'm on Instagram as The Threads Podcast with dots between the words. Please subscribe to the RSS and look out for the next episode, which will be coming out very soon.